History Lecture 46, Rebbe Leiweiss, Rome now is starting to emerge as a world power. We've been talking about the, um, we just finished last week talking about the Hanukkah revolution and the Chazal a year later established a, an everlasting eternal celebration on Hanukkah. They're cleaning up. Uh, the, the war is not over. It's still being fought in the background. The, uh, that's another reason why we tend to not emphasize the military victory. The secular, especially the, the Israelis have a tendency to glom onto that part of the Hanukkah story, the wars, the, 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 very, the strategies, and so on. But that's really besides the point since we emphasize Hashem's miracles. Um, really what's going on is it's a really complicated dark period with all the light that comes through, but the darkness never quite recedes. In the book of Maccabees, is, is that where they talk about the war strategies? Or? They tend to, and I don't know if we've said this yet, but the, the, book, the book itself seems to have been written by Itzduki. I mentioned this in the year, yeah. So it, it, it's been written by Itzduki, so they have their values, which tend to be very olam hazet, this worldly kind of emphasized. And um, that's not, we, they, they tend not to talk about the Hashem and the miracles and so on. So that, that's one of the reasons you know, why we, we stay away you know, from it. Um, they become, most of them, and we'll see this already today, most of them become Hellenized. Correct. Very sad twist of events. Right, that's why we're not, yeah, they're heroes with a uh, disclaimer, but not so, not so posture. Now, during all of this period, the Greeks are still the world's supreme power, but Rome, we start to see emerging as a world power in the background. You remember the, a couple of the fateful instances, the night that Shlomo married Basparo, Gavriel, the angel comes down and sticks a reed into the, into the sea, and then we also saw when, the, uh, when Yeravam built his two uh, agolim, the, the golden calves in Dan and Beitel, so that was further development, the, the island emerged, and so on. So now there is a full-fledged uh, country that's coming about. Um, they attack the Greek entities so far unsuccessfully, but that's, that's going to change soon enough. The, um, and because the Jews, the Hashmonaim, are fighting the Greeks, usually the assumption in world history is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That was Yehuda, Yehuda Maccabee. His strategy, he makes an alliance with Rome, hoping that this new power might help them overcome the Greeks. Remember, we've seen this before. That's not usually advisable. When we make a pact with the, uh, so the non-Jews, you remember what happened to Asa Hamelef, who makes a pact with the non-Jews, and we see this as a pattern in history. He makes the tunnel. I mean, he makes, he the, makes the pit. He makes the pit. And we'll see this again. So not, not, not a good thing. Even though real politic might suggest that we should do this, and today, we're supposed to learn lessons from history. Today also, little Israel is trying to figure out how to make different alliances in the world. Generally, our, our, our best bet, our best formula was to rely on the Kaddish Baruch Hu, uh, in these instances. Jake? Not yet. Not yet. We, we, we have about a century or so, uh, over a century till Herod comes around. But he'll, he's, he's going to be coming around soon enough. The uh, Yehuda now in Yerushalayim, there's still this tumor in their midst in the form of this fortress called the Chakra Fortress, where you have the Greeks still hold up 
uh, inside this fortress and it's such a mighty structure and it's got all the food and water supplies that they could need that they could need uh, to that they needed to last a long siege and Yehuda again attempts to destroy it uh, doesn't work it's going to remain in in the midst of Jerusalem and of course they're going to the Greeks from the inside are going to try to subvert the Jews they the Greeks will turn to the new young king we saw last week that the uh, the old Antiochus passed away and now the new uh, a, a grisly death and now his the new young king Antiochus V um, will try to help out and he comes with a large force the new secret weapon of the Greek fighting machine to suppress the Jews the new secret weapon I was going to say the small secret weapon but it would be anything but that. They're carrying, they're bearing now elephants. Elephants was the, was was one of their famous modes uh, modes of uh, of attack, and they attack the Jewish center in a place called Beit Sor, which is identified today south of Gush Etzion. There's actually uh, there's there's a there's a similarly named Jewish settlement in that area, Karmate Sor today. So Beit Sor, somewhere in that area, is where the Jews are holed up, and the Jews there are are fighting but they're terrified and Yehuda comes down from Jerusalem to help them and, and, and try to give assistance to the Jews there and um, one of the brothers Elazar is in the process of killing one of the ele elephants when uh, he does such an effective job he kills the elephant and as the elephant falls to his death it falls on Elazar and crushes him to death well, as I mentioned last week, the only one who, if you want to be a pedant about this, the only one who, uh, who really who should have been called Maccabi is Yehuda. Uh, the rest are his family, they're the Hashmonaim. But, yeah, Elazar is one of the five sons. He's the first of the five sons that we hear about explicitly to die. The eldest of the five sons is a fellow by the name of Yochanan, who we know the least about Yochanan. And it's possible he's already died. We know they all die horrific deaths. Um, I mean, I guess being crushed by an elephant would count. And uh, but Elazar is the first famous death uh, to befall these, uh, literally to befall these people. What's that? The uh, source. The elephant is. I think that's Maccabee. Or just like any of this. It's partly that, partly this. It's it's a hodgepodge of lots of different sources. Uh, to be fair, this 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 part, and that's a fair question. At this point, we've already graduated from the Tanakh. We're in the post-Tanaitic Tanakh period, so a lot of us we have midrashim, we have, we have Chazal's, the Gemara's, Gemara's version, and we do have certain other works that, that that can inform the discussion. Usually, the other works, when it's giving non hashkafically loaded areas of uh, discussion, like Elazar died because an elephant fell on him, those we have little reason to question. So the Jews now, defeated, withdraw to Jerusalem. Menelaus, one of the old bad guys who made himself the Kohen Gadol and he wasn't even a Kohen. You remember the Jews were some of the worst bad guys, worst villains, worst, worst villains. So he's finally assassinated by the new Antiochus. So finally he's out of the way. The... Uh, after uh, the, this Antiochus passes from the scene, the new king is named Demetrius. There's a new overlord over Eretz Yisrael named Bachidas. You don't need to know these names, but sometimes they come up, so I, I, I mention them. Bachidas now is spearheading the war against the Jews. There is, at the time, another Kohen Gadol who's wicked, 
Well, there's a time that they they the coin the the coin gadol is sometimes an institution that's purchased. This one's name is Alcimus, and he sends. The story goes, he sends. By the way, one of our sources. This one I think I have from Josephus. Josephus, the author from the the late Second Temple period, already writes about this period, right. and he he recounts the story of Alcimus, the the wicked coin gadol, who sends sixty tzaddikim, sixty righteous men, two bachidas to their death, and Bachidus uses uh, a new mode of murder that's particularly cruel. It's called crucifixion. One of the early mentions of crucifixion. Um, and one of the Jews, one of the 60 Jews that the um, that Alcimus sends for crucifixion is his own uncle, who we haven't heard from in a while because I haven't had a chance to discuss him. His name is Yossi ben Yoezer. He's the Gun Lador, and he's being sent to his own to his death by his own nephew, the Kohen Gadol. Uh, Rabbi, yes. If he was so wicked, why didn't he die with Nazareth? Well, right. not clear. They usually did, but it wasn't an absolute. And this story could have happened before. It was Yom Kippur, before he served out had served out his term. Even even while giving Kabbalah tonight, there's plenty of stories. Right? Well, listen to this story and see if you have, listen to the end of the story, and maybe there's an answer in what winds up happening. Now, Alcimus now, he's technically the the. This is a medrash. This is Breshis Rabbah. Alcimus now is Chayev Dalid Nisus Beistin. He violates um, so many sins. He covers every one of the capital's crimes and is, is subject to every single one of the uh, uh, kinds of deaths. I'm sorry that Arya is not here to experience this. He would have enjoyed that. The, uh, and his uncle rebukes him. Uh, his uncle tells him, Yossi ben Yozer, you know, Chazal have such a light touch. This is what he says to his nephew. He says... Nephew, just want you to think about this one. If I die in this way, oh, Arye, you just missed the best part. I just mentioned you. Alcimus the Kohen Gadol is Chayev Dalid Misos Beistin. Every every worst kind of death he was subject to. And the, the Brisa goes, excuse me, the Medrash goes on, and 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 his uncle Yosi Ben Yoezer the Gadol, one of the, the first of the Zugos, he says, if I'm dying this horrific death of crucifixion. And I'm dying because I'm keeping mitzvahs. What do you suppose your fate will be? Ouch! That's a, that's how they give rebuke, right? That's that's what you do. Who just, who just gave me a good line? Somebody just fed me. He wanted to notice what to, what to say to his friend. His friend um, is somebody whose brother died of an overdose, and the friend said that he um, continues to smoke marijuana, I don't know what other things he does, he continues to, to partake of the drugs because his argument is he feels closer to his brother when he's stoned. That's what, the, that's, what the, that's what the young man said. So somebody came over and said, Rebbe, what do I say to him? So I said, I said I'm also trying to find, you know, you find, Chazal give you the most the inspiration to have, the, the sharpest but gentlest simultaneously kind of things to say. I said, well, think about this. Your brother in Olam Haba is kicking himself for his foolishness, that he threw his life away over something as irrelevant as recreational drug use. And you are trying to get close to him. He re, He's re, re, repulsed by your behavior. He's distancing yourself from you insofar as you continue his errant ways. You'll get close to him if you try to clean up your act. Anyway, Yossi ben Yoezer gives this scathing rebuke, and to his credit, his, it reaches his nephew. And uh, this is on the way to Yossi ben Yoezer's execution. Um, Alcimus makes tshuva, and the Medrash tells us he kills himself. 
in the process of making tshuva. And uh, he's makabal. So you ask Jake, what, uh, you know, how could such a person be Kohen Gadol? It may be a Kaddish Baruch who kept him alive long enough that he'd have the opportunity to make tshuva, which a Kaddish Baruch who makes these kinds of cheshbonos, we can't. We can't know exactly his ways, but everybody has lives exactly the life that they need to lead, lead so that they can accomplish what they need to. The Mishnah in Sota, one that I'm going to be quoting a lot, tells us that when Yossi ben Yoezer, the last of the first zug, the first couple who leads the, 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 the as the period of the zugos of, the, of these two of these righteous people who lead the generation, when he dies, the Mishnah tells us batu ha'eshkolos, no more. Remember this term ashkol, and it means a cluster of grapes or grapefruit, but it actually means um, it actually means the people who are so perfect isha kolbo. They passed from the scene. This was the last generation that once upon a time knew what the world was like without Machlokas. They're the first generation with Machlokas. Yossi ben Yoezer and his, and the based in Yossi ben, Yoch, uh, ben Yochanan argued for the first time in the history of life. And it's, it's not, it's, it's well, the well, first well, argument, well, but well, not the last. Wasn't that like a oh, it's about, about smicha. Smicha and on, on, on a korban and yata. Be we talked about this last week. We talked about this last week, that the, uh, the lack of machlokas was a sign of the prophetic times when you had clarity of what Hashem wanted for you. Now we're going to find increasing cloudiness, increasing confusion about our, our role in the world. Right now, they're still holding on a relatively high level. There's, after all, only one argument in the world. There's only one machlokas. But we're going to see a gradual and then eventually steady decline it's as Machlokas increases. It's in a period based Mishnah, 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 the next zug in this period of the zugos of the five of the five altogether zugos you can find all this in the first chapter of Perkyavos. We meet Yoshua ben Prachia, who's the figurehead. He's the nosi, and his colleague is Nitai Haarbeli, who's the Avbeistin. Uh, I sometimes um, have, has anybody been on a hike up in the north, uh, north of Tiberias called the Arbel. Very fun hike. Uh, you go down spikes in the side of a mountain. We often take the yeshiva there, and I tell stories about Nita Harabeli, what we know about him. Uh, they're what's considered the second generation of, of the Zugos. Together with them, you'll notice on your Masora sheets, Yochanan, the son of Matisyahu, appears in the Shalshelis of Kabbalah as the next in line for the, um, for the Kabbalah. But that doesn't make much sense. Because we never hear much of anything about this Yochanan. He's the same of the eldest of the five brothers that virtually nothing is known about him. So the Barbanel argues with the Rambam and he says, no, that's not that Yochanan. It's really Yochanan Herkinus who we're about to meet, who's the son of Shimon. Shimon being one of the five brothers. But if I'm overwhelming you with too many names, I'll try to make order of it uh, as, as we go down. Now, um, how are they different from the leaders of the Jews in previous generations? The Gemara Tzmur says, listen, they're on a stellar high level. They are not blemished. There's no defect, but they're not technically considered ashkolos anymore. Uh, they don't have the same quite purity as the previous generations, as, as, as high a level as they are. They do sustain, they have the same argument over smicha. And they also, this is, this is another 
new, new uh, interesting, unprecedented phenomenon that's unique to their generation, they, in the, in the, in the scheme, you know what I keep saying when I'm talking about the Messiah, right? This, thank you, so nice, already. Remember this sheet? Daniel, look up. Look, look I know, did I just make you lose the game? Good. Arye, look up. Okay, this sheet, this sheet, right, is the line of the Masorah, the oral tradition going through them. It's an oral tradition. It is usur me, the Arisa, to write down the oral tradition, as I mentioned to many of you before, uh, that book that you, that you learn all, all morning, that Talmud is usur. I say tongue-in-cheek, of course it's not us, sir. It's what we had to do, and we'll talk about here why it was necessary to write down. But in theory, you're not allowed to write down the oral Torah because when you write things down, you freeze them. The oral Torah, by definition, was, was and remains, is, is intended to be an ongoing mechanism through which we figure out how to adapt Torah to wherever and whenever we're living in the world. So Torah needs to be a living Torah to, to make it a Torah's chayim. We have to know when the Torah says uh, this particular uh, mitzvah, how we then apply it directly to our situation. That's why we always need living, breathing poskim to determine because a previous generation of poskim might not have had the exact parallel scenario, and I need to know what, how to apply it in our age, in our, in our time, in, in, in our time and in our, in, in our place, given our set of circumstances today. For sure, for sure, we have to do that. But but what, the problem whenever you write it down is you you've made something that's by definition malleable, that's left to the discretion of the leaders, and now you're containing it and as it were making putting it in a box, and um, that was problematic. However, what we find in this generation of Yoshua ben Prakia and Nita Harabeli for the first time was they wrote something called the Megillas Starim, which means. I think the best way of looking at it is something like crib notes, brief notes that they jotted down to remind themselves of the Masorah that they were transmitting. See, part of the complexity, you're talking about everything. The entire living tradition, the application of how the Chumash then is transmitted to halacha, practical halacha. Now you have the whole, all of the additions of the Antik Gedola, the, the new laws of Muktzah and the, and the prohibition of doing Mekah Memkar, business on Shabbos, and, and the myriad different things. And every generation, of course, if you, picture, if you can picture the Masorah as a living, breathing organism, it grows, it gets, it gets more vast. And so it became so vast that in order, and because the generation is declining, they wrote down key buzzwords, key, let's say you want it, bullet points, as a way of reminding themselves of how, how it worked, of what was, what was the system. Um, six years after Yehuda takes over from his father, Matisyahu, as the leader of the revolt, of the leader of the Hashmonaim, he goes to battle. Uh, Bachidas is, is still the king, is, is, and Bachidas suddenly wages a surprise attack when Yehuda's not looking, and he kills Yehuda HaMakabi, plus much of his battalion in a place called Leshem in the area of Hebron. And Yehuda dies, and uh, he's the next of the five brothers to die a grisly death. <laughs> and the Yushalmi in Harayos comments. What was, what, how do we relate, how does, story, how does history judge 
the family of the Hashmonaim. They were on the one hand, un- unmistakably, but they were great tzaddikim. And uh, we're celebrating their great work. Obviously, in a couple weeks, it'll be Hanukkah time. There's no question that they, that they deserve the merits that they're given. The Yushalmi points to their demerits. The problem, one of the major central problems of the, of the Hashmonaim, they were Kohanim, and a Kohen shouldn't have assumed political leadership as they did. You're mixing and matching the crown, something that we're going to see soon enough was a terrible, toxic cocktail. Um, the Ramban adds to this and says they were heroes, but the fact that they died not only not only these not not only did they die unnatural deaths, they died particularly mashunadika deaths, the really awful, uh, unusual deaths. Each death made you wonder. Wow, Nesa Shemai says us. This seems to come directly from Hashem, um, either in a war or by some kind of uh, hard assassination. Um, that's because they took too much on themselves. They should have been Kohanim and left left, left the job of being a Melech to another uh, agency, namely that of Yehuda. Yehuda was it was and remains eternally the people who are supposed to be the kings, the house of David, and uh, they took on too much. Um, the next ruler is the other brother, Yehonasan. There are two brothers still around as far as we know. Again, I told you, Yohanan's death is only referred to obliquely. We don't really know what happens to the eldest brother. But Yonasan and Shimon are the surviving brothers. And Yehonasan is the next ruler. And he'll oversee the war that keeps going on against Bachidas and the rest of the Greeks. Yeah, Barak. But if they were Kohans, how could they uh, fight? Like, how did... We talked, I briefly mentioned that. Uh, also Akasha. You can say, sometimes you have to break the Torah to keep the Torah, and much like Levi, back in the days of the Cheta Egel, Mila Shem Eli, had to take, literally take up arms in order to defend Hashem's honor. So on some level, that's what they're doing. On the other hand, did they have to be the ones? Nobody else could have stepped in. It's another question. It's another question. It could be, by the way, that they would they would fight, but then leave when the death would happen. Although we know that war and battles are much messier than than, than, uh, than we we often have control to be able to, to do such a thing. So it's it's simply a kasha you're asking. It may it, it may it certainly is. sometimes it was bikoch nefesh. The question is the ongoing war was that continued? Every battle was extended bikoch nefesh. That's a harder case to make. Um, maybe, maybe it was uh, nobody else was there. But Makom Sheni Shishtadaliosish in a place where there's no person, you have to be that person to step forward. Rav Moshe Feinstein has a has a shaila. Somebody asks him, "What um, what can you? I want to see if you're winning at least. Uh, okay, the, okay, I can see if I win. If you're winning, did you win? Oh, okay. <laughs> the um, so the um, ba ba yeah, so he's asked, can a Cohen, a Cohen's dream of his life, that modern-day Cohen, wanted to go to med school? Can he be a doctor? Rav Moshe Paskin, unambiguously, usher. Usher. Today, the medical profession is set up. It's set up in such a way that you cannot avoid contact with a cadaver. And a Cohen can't do that. And you can't say it's pikuach nefesh, let somebody else be a doctor. You don't have to be the one to do it. And it raises, the, raises our awareness. Not everything in the world is open to everybody. Some things we simply can't do. That's I mean, what the Torah. It's not set up such that you, they're going to force you to be in contact with the dead body. It's set up such that if, in a case of people who have it, you would have to get in contact with the dead body. Not just. In medical school, the you dissecting, bisecting, you know, dissecting cadavers. Uh, let's, let's see if you're in that. 
So you're just talking about having to see a dead body if, if for example, you're in the field and then being in hospitals. Die. Maybe they can create they can create such a program. But right now, these are Moshe's to his assessment, and he checked it out. He wouldn't just pass it like this. Can he checked it out. It's virtually impossible. Can the Kohen be in the, the army today? <laughs> can the Kohen be? Can the Kohen be in the army today? It's a good question. Because it's a very good question. Today, yeah, because the army today is so diversified that it's entirely plausible that they won't be in hand-to-hand combat. They can have other jobs without necessarily coming in contact with the dead. If you've got a gun, you're not actually touching the gun. Right, right. No, also, all, all valid also, questions. Also, I would say that to qualify like that you're doing it, you have to like be in a situation where you're going to be in a dead body, where, where you're going to be next to a dead body, not a situation where you might be next to a dead body. Because like, you could argue that if a, a coin can't walk outside, you know, somebody might not. Right, that's true. It has to be plausible. That's a fair point. Yeah. That is a valid point. Uh, there, I, I mentioned last week I'm, that you could, we could spend a long time on the various battles and intrigue and all the politi- politics. Uh, I'm going to skip to the stuff that's just immediately relevant for our purposes. Lots of betrayal and backstabbing. In the end, Bachidas makes a pact with Yehonasan. They form an alliance. Yehonasan goes back to Yerushalayim. And after years of hardship and battle, he takes over and he officially becomes the Kohen Gadol four years after his brother Yehuda died. Here we have an instance where now you have the political leadership and the spiritual leadership in one place. Uh, and that's more or less the situation that's going to persist through the Hasmonean dynasty. With one exception, I mean, you know the Hasmonean, the Hashmonaim, the dynasty, one figurehead of the Hashmanaim will not assume the position of Kohen Gadol as well? Probably the girl person. Right, the girl person named Shlomziona Malka. She wasn't a girl when she was, since she was queen. She was an older woman at that point. Uh, but obviously she's not the Kohen Gadol, but they all assumed the high priesthood um, as part of, their, uh, part of their power. Now, this is all taking place, and I'm summarizing this whole complex period. What you have to picture is Hellenism continues to gain steam. As we keep saying, the Greek system is just so tempting, very hard to resist, and it's all around you, and they continue, the number of tzedukim grow, the number of kutim grow, and, uh, and very, very, very difficult to resist. Um, they themselves, the Greeks are not unified, they have their own battles between one another. And in one particular episode, Yehonasan, the leader of the Jews, is deceived by one of the Greeks, and he's kidnapped while he's away in Akko. Akko in the north of the country, the northern port, port city. Uh, his men are killed. And the Greeks now know that the other brother, the other charismatic force within the Hashmanim, Shimon, is, uh, you know, is, is, is leading the battle on behalf of the Jews now. And they want to get Shimon. And so they try to deceive him. They say, let's, the Greeks call the Shimon, let's call a truce. We'll call a truce and you can be reunited with your beloved brother, Yehonasan. Uh, and Shimon says, no thanks. He smells, he smells correctly that it's not, it's not, these are not people you can trust. And indeed, the Greeks murder Yehonasan. Shimon leads a major military campaign. He's successful. And he's so successful that he actually takes the Jewish empire now to its most successful, fullest hegemony that his family has yet known. This is arguably the heyday of the Hashmonaim and their rule. So much so that he becomes sovereign. They, and what's the sign of that? He doesn't have to pay taxes to any foreign ruler. The Jews have their own sub-state now. 
And this is the only time, and again, it's a short-lived, it's not even a 100 years. Of the 420 years of the Second Temple, it's less than 100 of those years. Uh, the Jews now are potter, are exempt from paying any foreign ruler. Uh, well, it's, it's a show of submission. It means that you can't really make your decisions. You can't that rule the people, land. That means people are poor. Also true. You have a, you have a weaker economy. No question. All, all ramifications. Uh, militarily, politically, economically, spiritually. You're not free to, to, learn, to live a Torah life either. Entirely. You remember when they rebuilt the Second Temple, they had that picture of Shushan in the Eastern Gate. They had the plank of wood always reminding them who's boss. That's not sovereignty. And there's, 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 there's a diminished simcha as a result of, of that situation. Now, finally, for the first time in the Second Temple period, the Jews enjoy a certain sovereignty, a certain independence. It's under Shimon, finally. He attacks the Chakra, this fortress that's been this tumor in the midst of Jerusalem, and he evacuates it and levels the whole structure. It's got, it's interesting when here's archaeologists excavating down in what's called the Southern Excavations, the Davidson Center, and they say, oh, we think here this might have been the uh, Chakra Fortress. They think that they're, they're, they're finding, but the story seems to indicate that that was, <laughs> that was destroyed. So how could we have ruins today? Maybe. Wait, I, I'm, I'm skeptical. Wouldn't that mean that there are ruins? It, it, but yes, but he totally destroyed it. Uh, in which case, it would be, and it would make sense since it was such a symbolic uh, plague on the Jews in their midst that he would completely eradicate it. The base because that was not that was not completely eradicated. The chakra he was trying to completely wipe out. So okay, debatable. I don't think we know these things one hundred percent. It's under Shimon that there's a peace that is and, and, and a, a new assertion of Torah. Shimon is a tzaddik. He's not Shimon a tzaddik. That's a different person. Uh, he uh, Shimon Shimon the Shimon ben Matisyahu is his name. He reinforces the observance of halacha all around Eretz Yisrael. Uh, as it's described, as in the days of Shimon Tzadik himself, uh, already, already many, many generations earlier. Um, but this will be short-lived. <laughs> Shimon has a son-in-law. His name is, they have common names back in the day. His name is Talmi ben Chovav. Uh, and Shimon makes him the governor over uh, an area out to the east called Arvos Yericho, around the area of Jer Jericho. And Talmi has a party. And he invites his father-in-law and really the whole Gantz Mishpocha. He says, Dad, come on down, bring the family. Uh, Shimon, his wife, and two of three of his sons goes down to the, what's called the, the, um, the Doch Fortress, the remnants of this fortress. This, they think, the archaeologists reasonably believe that they found uh, just near this, the, 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 uh, the city of Jericho today, the Doch Fortress. And Talmi invites his father and mother-in-law, his two brothers-in-law, uh, he and his wife invite them for a feast. And they make a celebration. When everybody comes, you know, <clears throat> he assassinates Shimon and the two, the two, two of his brothers-in-law. The third brother-in-law I mentioned is not there. He's not present. And that was not what Talmi had planned. And he puts the rest of the family in chains. That would mean uh, the extended family plus his own wife and his mother-in-law. And when he realizes that they didn't get that third son, the third brother-in-law, uh, Talmi sends his men to kill him. His name is Yochanan. And Yochanan is out in a place called Gezer. 
the, the Ptolemy's men go out. I mean, this is what's going on with the Greeks. And it's typical. This is a taste of life in the day, back in the day. <coughs> lots of uh, conspiracy, lots of palace intrigue. So now the Ptolemy's men, Ptolemy wants power. That's the way, that's the Greek way. And he's going to assassinate the royal family. And he's, he sends his men to assassinate Yochanan. But Yochanan cleverly hears everything. He, he amasses his own independent force. He hears of this plot and ambushes the men and is able to, to, to kill them before he's killed himself. Yochanan hears of the tragedy. One of his brothers that was murdered was named, his older brother was Hyrcanus, and in uh, dedica dedication to Hyrcanus, he takes Hyrcanus as a second name. This is Yochanan Hyrcanus. He's a very pivotal figure during this period, Yochanan Hyrcanus. And he manages to amass a large army. And uh, this is not what Ptolemy expected. This is not Ptolemy's plan down in, down in Jericho. Uh, and Ptolemy now takes refuge in the fortress of Doch. And meanwhile, Yochanan comes and surrounds the, uh, the fortress. The siege is now set. And Ptolemy does, Ptolemy does something particularly cruel. By the way, um, we might go there this year. I hope to. I, I don't go every year. But there's another um, Hasmonean fortress called Kipros which is that Herod later names it for his mother, um, that I like to hike on top of. And you have this spectacular view overlooking all of Yericho. And you can see over what they call Doch Fortress. And so I love telling the story standing outside and describing and envisioning Yochanan's uh, army as they set siege to, uh, to Doch, the fortress. Talmi, in defense, sends his own wife and mother-in-law out on the tower walls. They're in chains. And he proceeds to have his men whip and torture them in full view of the Jewish army and in full view of Yochanan. So Yochanan's watching his own mother and sister being, uh, being tortured. And Talmi screams, if you do not let us go, we're going to throw them to their deaths. Yochanan cries and he retreats. His mother, a very courageous woman, says, do not pay attention to us. Continue. If you don't fight this man, he'll do terrible, uh, terrible acts of evil, and whatever will be with us will be with us. Um, they're allowed to fight for self-defense, and um, yeah, there's no. You can fight that kind of a war because it's not inevitable that the mother and the sister are going to be killed. And if another question, if Shimon was such a sadist in the generation, why would he kill him? So I'll, I refer you back to the Yushalmi and the Ramban that I quoted a few minutes ago and saying that as great and valiant as leaders they were, there was something off about them, about all of the five brothers. That's why they all died. This, he's, his death, he's the last of the five brothers to fall, is, uh, really completes the cycle. So now um, Yochanan can't listen to his mother and ultimately retreats to Jerusalem without conquering Doch. Ptolemy murders the women and ultimately flees to Egypt and he dies there. And Yochanan Hyrcanus now is the new king. Okay, so he's the next step in the Hashmonaic uh, dynasty. He is a warrior. He fights a lot of wars. He'll expand the borders of Judea, of the Jewish state. Uh, it's described as back in the days of David and Shlomo. That's questionable. It's not quite as large. We have approximate... We don't have maps exactly, but we have descriptions of the extent of the borders. They are, if anybody came with me a couple weeks ago when we were in the museum, does anybody remember my standing near one of the maps and describing what's called the Bryce of the Tomim? Does that ring a bell? 
And I showed you the map and I said, these are approximately the Hamachic borders of Eretz Israel based on this time period. It's the largest expanse of Judea from the Second Temple period. Uh, actually, Yochanan Hyrcanus makes it larger, but some of his heirs will make it even larger. Yanai HaMelech, his son, will expand to its ultimate uh, largest uh, capa uh, capacity. And that's more or less what's considered the Halachic borders till today. Um, that's pretty significant. So the, so the part that they extended the land, does that mean all the land, land that was like extended, like, let's say, Correct. A lot of significance in halacha then. In other words, no. what you're talking about is the mitzvot atlios ba'aretz. There are mostly agriculturally based laws that pertain to Eretz Yisrael. That's pretty important to know then what so the exact borders are. Correct, correct. But these are considered the definitive borders till today. And there's a discussion about the borders with regards to these different areas of halacha. Um, the fact that we've, let's say we've extended the that? No, no, because this is not recognized as a halachic state. Right? Yeah. No, then, then we go back to the previous halachic states. <laughs> this is the Judea was, with all of its complexity, and it's not perfect, not the ideal world, but it was a, a halachic state. Certainly under Shimon and his son, Yochanan Hyrcanus, they were, they were Torah-observing Jews. And, uh, and therefore it's legitimate. The um, last attack of the uh, kings in the north, Yochanan um, Hyrcanus survives. And from this point on, the Greeks and the Jews are no longer at war. In other words, the whole long war, revolt against the Greeks, officially comes to an end. And from this point, we find Yochanan Hyrcanus enters an alliance with the Greeks. It was begrudgingly. They realize, okay, you can't beat them, join them. And they become, they become allies now. Yochanan Hyrcanus now uh, decides to go up and exert his authority. He goes up to the Shomroni strong base. Uh, there's a city called Sebastia. He destroys it. It'll later be rebuilt. Um, you've, been, you've, been, you've been to my website by chance? So yeah. one, of, one of the pictures that I have up there is a picture of me guiding Sebastia. It's also known as Tel Shomron. It's the original capital of the Northern Kingdom, same place. So at this point, Yochanan Hyrcanus destroys it. What, Elan? I was just about to ask the U.S. Okay. Where it's yeah, same, same, yeah, same place. And there's indeed a, an Arab village, <laughs> a, a hostile Arab village today, called Sebastia, the same name. Um, the, remember, years ago, they rebuilt the fortress, the Kuti fortress, up on Hargrizim. Yochanan Hyrcanus goes and destroys it. Uh, he'll, he'll kill many of the Shomroni, many of the Kutim. It's around this time that Yochanan Hyrcanus, and this is where the story starts to, uh, start, starts to take a very um, scary and, uh, and, and sad turn, he starts to form an alliance with some of the Tzedukim, with some of the, the Hellenized Jews. And his motivation is, like a, let's say a diplomatic leader wants to, I mean, what do they say about the current American president when he was first elected? He tried, as they say, to cross the aisle and bring in Republicans. He's a Democrat, so he wants to make alliances with Republicans because you are more, uh, let's say, powerful in your leadership if you can somehow integrate the two sides of the, uh, of, of the debate. So along those lines, at first at least, Yochanan Hyrcanus makes an alliance with these Tzedukim, with these Sadducees. He does something else that's a little bit odd, and on, a sur on the surface level we could understand him. Because the country has been uh, ruled by non-Jews, 
and there's been this very complicated time with the Greeks coming in and influencing uh, people there, there are populations of non-Jews, and one of the large populations includes Esau's descendants, Edom, living in areas, Lachish, and uh, let's say south of the area, south of uh, Ramat Beit Shemesh, if you could picture that area, uh, there are, there's a whole pocket of a population of Edomim. And Yochanan Hyrcanus makes a, a strategic decision that instead of fighting them or exiling them, he converts them. And they convert this whole population because much like the situation that you have in Israel today, you have a demographic challenge if the Arabs are producing more babies than the Jews and you have a democracy, at what point, and that's part of the discussion with the, the, this Bill Barak that you've been talking about, the yeah, Jewish, Jewish state, state. That's, that's going down, at what point will you no longer <laughs> even have a Jewish state? So it's a similar kind of a, a, a dynamic that, that exists back in these days of course, if you convert them to Judaism, then you have the demographic advantage. Then you suddenly have a larger Jewish population. And that's his solution to this problem. Of course, it's ominous because among the converts is a fellow by the name of Antipater or Antipater, depending on your pronunciation. And Antipater has a, uh, well, let's say a troubled son by the name of Hordus, in English, Herod. Oh, oh I knew this. Um, there are going to be a lot of familiar strands in history that we're going to start to connect things that you know about that I encourage you to take notes and try to keep track of all these pieces because this is a very impactful time, very influential time. Herod was Jewish. Herod was a child of converts from this period. Yochanan Hyrcanus was the one. Yes, he was Jewish, but well, yes, yes, he was Jewish. However, it's debated what this, what, how Jewish was he really. The uh, forced gear, according to Victor Miller and other sources, this was a forced conversion, and much like the conversion in the days of Mordechai and Esther, was not a valid conversion. Many of the post schemes say it was not a valid conversion, which means what are they? What is their status? They're really more avadim, like an Evid Knani type status. They're not really Jewish. They're not really going. There's something in between. They're called avadim. It's with this explanation, Rav Miller explains a very difficult Gemara in Baba Basra that says that the um, Herod indicates that Herod was an Evid to the Hashmonaim, the, the, the dynasty, um, without actually having been an Evid. He wasn't really a servant in their house. So how does the Gemara use the term Evid? Well, Rav Miller suggests that this is the basis of it, that they were never really proper converts, that they, uh, that they were Avadim. Um, Yohanan Hyrcanus also goes back and reconnects with the Roman, uh, not empire, the Roman kingdom, little, little uh, kingdom, and he reinforces his uncle Yehuda's pact, his alliance with Rome. Uh, this is where we find the Jews. Yohanan Hyrcanus is a big deal. We'll, we'll, tell, we'll tell the story about what happens with him tomorrow. Uh, it, it's a bad ending to the story, but he actually rules. He does not die one of these horrific deaths. He, he rules for 80 years. He was a young man when he began. He, lived, he had a long life. Uh, and so his time, his tenure is he's very impactful. Um, excuse me, he doesn't look, he rules for 40 years, not 80 years. There's, there's one day, maybe it's 80 years, but that doesn't make sense. That's just parts with history. 
So I, I'm going to stick with the, what the, the view that says it was 40 years. It makes more sense to me, at least. Um, let's take a quick pause. We've been so focused on the events going around Eretz Judea uh, that we, we should pause for a second to consider what's the state of Klal Yisrael in the world right now. The majority of the Jews are in Eretz Yisrael. But there are large pockets of Jews in and around, certainly in Bavel and Egypt, but elsewhere as well. I just said that, didn't I? And now I'm taking, I'm, 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 I'm consider, reconsidering that. That's not clear to me. Certainly, the central drama takes place in Eretz Yisrael. We hear very little about Bavel, but we know that there's a strong, large population there. So I don't know. I don't have the numbers in front of me exactly what the demographic breakdown is. The um, what we do know about this period of time is that generally, with the peace with the Greeks and the Jewish sovereignty. This period is marked by expansion and general prosperity. The Jews start to do well. Again, it's an exception. Most of the time in history, they do not do well. But this is one of the relatively good times. Um, that has a positive impact and observance. It's a little bit strange in history. Usually when things go well for us materially, it, we, we tend to assimilate. But um, somewhat, at least at first, there's a, there's a, there's a positive impact on Torah observance. We know that Yoshua ben Prachia, who's one of the Gedolim Hador, we mentioned him, one of the Zugos. It's during this period that he slaughters two more Paradumas, two more red heifers, because the Jews are now serving in their temple. There's a need, as ever, with, uh, with um, you know, to have purity and purification rites. In fact, at one of these events, one of the, one of the slaughtered red heifers, there is a young man freshly arrived from Vavel who witnesses the proceeding. He writes about this later. Anybody have any guess which great, great figure that you've all heard of is actually alive and there when Yeshua ben Prachia shechs one of the Paradumas? His name is Hillel. Hillel. He's a young man at the time and he testified. A young man means probably a child. Uh, generally, there, there are several uh, areas. There's a, there was a Greek ban against mentioning Hashem's name and now they start to write it back in their documents as a way of increasing observance. There was a, there was a leniency about what's called demai, which means that if uh, we can be lenient, if an ama aretz may or may not have taken trumos and maestros, we could be lenient with them. On the other hand, um, even though there's a, a somewhat of an increase in observance, you have to remember as well Klal Yisrael as a population has been kind of sinking and declining in their Torah knowledge. Remember that there was this population expansion and there was, uh, and, and, and people had not been sending their sons to Jerusalem to Torah. And after a while, that takes a toll. The common language, everybody's speaking now, everybody, generations into it are in Greek. It's all Greek to me. It's all Greek. That's, that's what everybody's uh, speaking. Um, increasingly, in order to access their holy Torah, they're learning the Septuagint, they're learning the Targum Shivim, and they're not learning the Ashuris Torah. They don't know it. They don't speak the language. They don't read the script. They don't read the, uh, the characters. In, in uh, Babylon, are they still speaking uh, Aramaic? More so. More so. Aramaic is still the language in, 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 in Bavel. That's correct. Um, a little bit about this Greek. Do you know there's Greek in this Greek? There was an elevated holy Greek language that the Jews incorporated. It's sort of like we think of Yiddish. Yiddish is essentially German and, German and, and Hebrew. 
but it took on a kedusha. So this ancient Greek that was like had or Ladino for that matter had it was infused with a certain kedusha, and Chazal elevated it. They even elevated this Greek over Aramaic, um, as follows: If you hear, by the way, we don't have this anymore. There's no, we don't have this Greek. But let's say back in the day, if we heard Megillus Esther read in this ancient Greek. You're Yotzi, even if you didn't understand Megillus Esther. As if, you know that's true, that's a halacha. If you hear it in the Hebrew and you don't understand it, you're still Yotzi. You can hear the Megillus Esther in another language, but then you're only Yotzi, you're only fulfilling your obligation if you understood that language. So we see already in Afkami that this ancient Greek was actually on some level on the same, on the same uh, uh, par with, with Hebrew itself. No. No, it's Hebrew. Megillus Esther is Hebrew. Uh, ancient Greek. It was, it was referred to as Greek. But it's, it's clearly uh, an elevated Greek, not the, not the Greek that we have today. Um, we know that Sifre Torah, Tzfilin, Mezuzas could be written in this language. It's pretty shocking. In, in Greek. You could, read, you, could, you could write this in Greek. Uh, no other language had, or even till today, has that kind of status. Um, and as the Gemara Megillah tells us, this has been lost. We don't have this Greek anymore. Um, a comment on this Greek, Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew, the this old Greek, were all part of the Semitic languages, what's called Shem. They all, they all come from Shem. Even though Yavan was clearly from Yephes, but this Greek language, our tradition, is, is, is part of the Semitic family of languages. And indeed, many of these Greek words, even if the language disappeared, the Greek words would be absorbed and assimilated into the Hebrew, uh, into the Hebrew lexicon. So you probably know some of them. Um, here's a Greek word, afi koman, comes from this Greek language. It literally means afiku um, koman, go ahead, go away from before us. Afiku koman. They have an expression apotiki, which means stands and collect this. Apotehekoi, diatiki. Maybe some of these are less familiar, but if you learn more Gemara, you're going to encounter all of these. This is, that's a sick man's will. Androgynos comes from the Greek language. What does it mean? Androgynos, androgynous in English, in English too. Andro is man, gini is female, male, female. Androgynos. Uh, interesting in gematria. Anybody know what androgynos is in gematria? Zachar v'nekeva, male and female kind of indicating that there's something inevitable about the Greek, an intrinsic kind of kedusha to it. Words like Sanhedrin, prosdor, sandal, all come from Greek and many others as well. Prosdor is a corridor. The mission Pirkei tells us that this world, we should relate to this world as a prosdor, as a corridor, leading to the more significant Olam Haba. What's going on in Bavel during this time? In Bavel, there are large Jewish communities. They're in places like Tel Harsha, Hutzal, with, with the famous shul. Remember the shul that they built with the dirt and the stones from Eretz Yisrael? Naharda is still the center of learning. Uh, other names, Pum Nahara, Machoza, Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv was a, was a city in, in Bavel. That's, where, that's, one, that's the basis of where the modern Tel Aviv, that's where they took the name, partly. Um, the Medrash tells us when Jews uh, merits... What is the sign that Jews are doing well? That means most are in Eretz Yisrael and a few in, fewer in Bavel. So apparently it waxed and wanes. Maybe that's why I don't have the exact demographics here. There were more in Eretz Yisrael than in Bavel. And when they don't merit, there were more Jews in Bavel than in Eretz Yisrael. 
in Bavel, they actually did pretty well under the Greeks. Because Bavel, and we're going to see this in the Romans as well. Picture this. Picture in Bavel, and I'm going to pass out maps soon, so you can really con you can you can conceive of this. Bavel topographically is is uh, sort of separated by its deep valleys, by the rivers that surround it, and therefore often removed from a lot of the events of the world. And the Jews, that usually went well for the Jews, so they're not so exposed to the Greek. Uh, culture and world, they're able to sustain their own Jewish living in Bavel. Uh, they're left alone. They're certainly loyal to Yerushalayim, so the community of Bavel, while there's the second temple, they send korbanos, they send their machasit shekel, their, their, their contributions, their ole regel, which means they, they go for the pilgrimages on Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot every year. So you can picture this, there's a clear interplay between the two communities. The um, Gemara Yuma tells us that Jews looked down on Bavlim. Uh, there was a kind of a discrimination because they didn't join the return to the Shivat Sion, the return to Eretz Yisrael when they could have. And so the term becomes a derogatory term. Um, where else are the Jews? There are Jews right now in the world in far and wide places such as Cyprus. You picture Cyprus, the island that you can travel, let's say one of the closest islands to Haifa. Cyprus and Cyrene, which is near Egypt, and Ammon and Moab, across the way in today's Jordan. Um, all Jews in all these areas kept two days of Yontif, like Jews in Chutzlaretz do today, because uh, they didn't keep the proper one day in Eretz Yisrael. That's um, Gemara Basic talks about that. So, how the calendar been well, yeah, we did mention that. The calendar had to exist back in the 70 years of Babylonian exile, because they didn't have a to be Mechadesh the Chodesh. So there's a system for doing that, even though now that system is not necessary, because you do have a system that's alive and well in, in, in Yerushalayim for, the, uh, for not only um, Kiddush HaChodesh for establishing the new month, but also Ibu Roshana for, for, um, for making the years leap years. Uh, yeah, so those are, those are, all, those are all processes that are, that are very much in the world. The um, last thing for today I'm going to comment on is Egypt. We mentioned that the diaspora in Egypt had begun all the way back in the days of, anybody remember this? Far back in the first temple period, Chizkiah Melech, there was an Egyptian Gaulus already. I mean, there were Jews living there. Uh, there were actually, the Gemara Menachos tells us there were five cities in Egypt that spoke Hebrew. I was driving in Los Angeles years ago, and I turned on the radio. I was on a visit from Israel, I turned on the radio, and I heard the news in Hebrew. And I felt, I, I felt like, you know, like some kind of twilight, zone, some kind of strange, man, this can't be happening. I thought I left Israel, and I'm, in the, I'm in this, driving on the San Fernando Valley, listening in Hebrew. And I realized, San Fernando Valley, of all places, it's the largest concentration of Israelis outside of Israel in the world today, is the San Fernando Valley in California. For sure, for sure. So, so you had that phenomenon back in Egypt. That they have, they have five cities speaking Hebrew. <laughs> I'm sure that's true too. Uh, you remember that under Alexander the Great, without in Alexandria, the place filled with Jews. The Gemar, there was something in Alexandria, a really famous institution called the Dioplosten. Have you ever heard of it? Martin Sukkah talks about it. Giant, giant, I mean, you haven't heard, you haven't seen a giant synagogue till you're, li listen to the Gemara in Sukkah. Whoever's not seen the Diaplostin of Egypt, it's like a double palace, that's, the, that's, that's literally what the word Diaplostin means. Has not seen the glory of the Jews. Uh, it was an immense 
immense uh, structure. It could accommodate 600,000 Jews. Some say it was twice that number. It was so large that the chazan had to wave a flag so you know when to answer Amen because couldn't hear it. Like or or <laughs> kind of like bells, it's true, but nothing really quite like this. Um, they were seated there, the Gemara elaborates on it, they were seated there according to profession. Nobody should get take encouragement from this, so you should talk in shul, chas v'shalom. But they were seated by profession so that when they were on break from davening, not during davening, they could actually uh, meet other people in their professions, and I guess today we'd call it networking. Uh, they, th that's what they did. Um, they, Egypt was such a, a significant gallus, they had their own Sanhedrin of 71. Uh, they're particularly renowned for their arts, for their artisans, um, and they made, for example, they were the major source of making the musical instruments from the Levim. Uh, there were a couple of the grandsons of Chonio, Hilki and Hanania, actually did so well, they became high-ranking ministers and advisors, advisors to Cleopatra and her army, um, and they, because of their prominence, the Jews in Egypt uh, were elevated in their own social uh, status, and as we'll see, that's also usually not so good for the Jews. So as Rashi said, we'll continue this, and then we'll talk about the particular uh, sordid affair that, that uh, sends, takes the Hashmonim and turns them from uh, uh, basically a, uh, a royal house of greatness uh, to one that's anything but that. We'll do that tomorrow.